despite all of the moves that I constantly hear about getting beyond the ivory tower and reaching out to the community, I think there sometimes is a pressure on academics to do this in a way that feels more like it's to feed the sort of capitalist nature of academia and the university itself as an institution more than it is to actually interact with the community and learn from the community and what their needs are. Welcome to Decolonization in Action. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and the guest for this episode is Wendy Muse, PhD candidate at New York University, co-creator of the Left Pocket Project podcast, writer, and Twitter genius. On this episode, Wendy and I had a discussion about the Left Pocket Project podcast, which highlights the struggles and social movements from people of color. In our conversations, we discussed anti-colonial practice, creating community, co-learning, and democratizing knowledge. Thank you for joining us, Wendy. Thanks so much for having me. So I came across your work when you were interviewed by Dan Denver on the Dig podcast. And during your discussion, you talked about Bernie and Black voters. And shortly after, I came across your podcast, The Left Pocket Project. As a co-creator of this, honing on leftist movements by people of color, and it also dovetails with your research where you're trying to understand how people of color globally have developed their own leadership and theories for colonial resistance. Can you tell me about how you started that podcast and what role or gap it fulfills in the podcast world? Sure. Um, so this, the project itself actually started back in at the end of 2016. It was after the general election, the horrible general election we had in the United States, as most of them are, um, between Clinton and Trump, where Trump won, of course. And one of the things that I kept seeing in the lead up to that election, and then even during the primaries, uh, when the election was down between Clinton and Sanders, um, but of course, more of this subsequently uh, following the election was this idea that Black Americans were somehow conservative or that, you know, people uh, who were of African descent in the U.S. were voting on the basis of these like very conservative ideals and that that's why they would be more interested in Clinton during the primaries. And then subsequently, you know, I think when she lost the general, there was a lot of language coming out, like kind of blaming Black people. Why didn't you all show up and vote for her? There was just a lot of really negative rhetoric, I think, directed towards Black people in particular, but people in, of color in general for, quote unquote, not doing their duty uh, to stand behind Hillary Clinton, which was just absurd. And also very much sort of ignored the history of Black activism in the U.S., Black internationalism beyond the U.S. And I think a lot of the activist movements that were ongoing throughout the Obama administration and throughout the election itself that were very clear hints, I think, to the larger public and certainly the press that Black people in the United States were not necessarily satisfied with the neoliberal status quo that was being uh, represented by people like Clinton and Obama. And so I think that at that point, I said to myself, you know, I have to kind of look into the information that I have and the work that I've seen and also the the text that I've read in my own research, which has to do with connections between Brazilian activists and activists in Portuguese African colonies during the process of decolonization and how they work together during their concurrent fights against, on the one hand in Brazil's case, against the military dictatorship, and in the case of Portuguese African uh, colonial subjects at the time against the Portuguese. So I, I said to myself, like, there must be some sort of resources that I can use Twitter to put out. So I just started tweeting books that were written about uh, leftists of color around the world, like literally, you know, activist movements or left-leading movements that were led by and comprised of people of color 
seller, as you know, we sort of loosely define it. And so I literally just started tweeting it and I said, I need a hashtag for this. So I said, okay, left POC, that's like the easiest one, right? Uh, leftist people of color. Um, so I started tweeting all these books and then a lot of, it had a very positive response. There were like hundreds of books over time because I kept adding to the list. And eventually what I decided to do was actually make it an entire project. So the point of the project initially was to be able to bridge academia as we know it, sort of the ivory tower side of academia and the greater public, because there was clearly a hunger for more information about these movements. One of the other things that I saw a lot on Twitter was that there were sort of the same four or five people that were quoted as left major leftists of color. So nothing against these people, because of course they are inspirational to me and important to my work, but people like Franz Fanon or Fred Hampton, most of them were men. Um, so just to be clear about that, most of them were men. A lot of them were from the US in many cases or Europe, um, even though they were people of color. And so I kept trying to think like, how are there ways that I can clearly feed this need and interest that people have, but also try to expand upon or expound upon this knowledge and expand our understanding of who these figures were and what they stood for. So in the project, Initially, I wanted to do a podcast. I wanted to be able to talk to academics and activists and researchers about their work as it related to leftists of color. And I also wanted to make that platform completely free and available to anyone in the public who was interested in it. And so at first I wanted to have actual events, um, but just because of logistics and time and money and effort that that takes, I decided to just make it for now a podcast. Although I hope to at some point be able to actually have um, more in-person events as well that we then broadcast on the podcast. So when I created it, I initially was doing everything by myself. I still managed the entire project myself. But one of the things that I wanted to make make sure of was that the people I had on were not only themselves interested in leftists of color, but also had, you know, what I consider a correlative set of politics to the people that they were researching. So I didn't, I've, I'm very like particular about the people that I have on um, in terms of what they're doing outside of the academy or beyond just their, you know, activist circles, for example. The other thing I wanted to focus on as well is that even when I had on activists, they were often um, activists who were engaging in some way with local histories or histories related to their research or their, their activism, but not in a way that just sort of focused very acutely, like specifically on what they were doing, but kind of went beyond that. And so I've had on different researchers um, and activists as well who really do a good job of sort of grounding their work in the community and reaching out to other people as well. Um, the other thing about the project is that as far as it relates to decolonializing or decolonization, colonialization, oh my gosh, I can't say it. Um, but the act of decolonizing, let's just say it that way. It's funny because I even have trouble uh, with this word in other languages. I don't know, something about the L's. Um, but whenever, you know, one of the things that I noticed is just that despite all of the moves that I constantly hear about, about, you know, getting beyond the ivory tower and reaching out to the community, I think there sometimes is a pressure on academics to do this in a way that feels more like it's to feed the sort of capitalist nature of academia and the university itself as an institution, more than it is to actually interact with the community and learn from the community and what their needs are. Um, and so, one of the things that I really see the project is doing in terms of sort of decolonizing this space is that it is highly interactive, at least as interactive as this sort of virtual project can be. So we engage with our listeners all the time. Um, I post information, for example, I have 
uh, part of the project called Left POC of the Week, where I post information about leftist figures of color throughout history and sort of like about their lives and their activism so that people can learn more about different activists beyond the sort of same five that we always mention, as I mentioned before. Um, and the other thing as well is like I have as part of a project now, I brought on a co-host um, initially to do this aspect of the project, which is called Reading Revolution. And what we do for Reading Revolution, my co-host Richard and I will read a, a text, any sort of text that is written by leftists of color or that inspired leftists of color. Um, many of them decolonial -col texts. So for example, we read Albert Memmi recently. Um, and we talk about the text itself. We analyze some of the information. We discuss what's going on in the book. We also invite our readers to read the book along with us if they can and or to send us questions and comments about the book. All of the books that we provide are free. Um, so we'll have a PDF version of whatever we read. We always make sure that whatever we decide to read is available on the internet for free. Um, and we discuss it. And then usually these are like several, we've had several um, podcast episodes of this series, but we've discussed, for example, Freire, Paulo Freire. Uh, we've talked about Angela Davis's work, uh, Albert Memmi's work. We've read some of Fidel Castro's work, Carlos Marighella's work. So there's a lot of um, internationalism in the project as well. It's obviously not just about the United States, but understanding and going beyond our own personal spaces to read and learn about what leftists of color were thinking and doing throughout time that could really inform what we, the challenges that we have today and how we can uh, face them. I really enjoyed listening to the episode you referenced, The Colonizer and the Colonized, where Albert Memmi's work, who, as many people know, Jewish Tunisian scholar, and wrote about the kind of ways in which the colonizer is like built on a fiction and settler colonialism at the time in Algeria and the kind of newfound independence of Tunisia was very much part of how he helped to theorize this particular book. Can you tell me how Memmi's work, as well as other uh, anti-colonial scholars at that time, how they can be understood today, given that colonialism has mutated, morphed itself into a, another vein? Uh, so what role does that do these texts that you're analyzing in the leftist POC context have in a kind of steroid version of imperialism <laughs> that we see in the, in the current moment? That's a really good question. I think on the first hand, you know, I in response to the framing of your question, I think you're right that it has morphed. Um, we do see changes in colonialism. But I also think that many things have stayed the same. And that's why I think reading these texts is really important because one of the really fascinating aspects of Memi um, is when you read The Colonizer and the colonized, you start to see so many contemporary examples that you can kind of plug into the text and talk about as it relates to his the relationship that he explains between those with this sort of colonial power and those who are being ruled over by it. I think that there is a particular connection, for example, between gentrification and the way that we think about gentrification in the United States and the seizure of land from particularly poor people of color for the sake of greater capitalist real estate speculation and the like. I think there's also a really fascinating aspect of his work as we think about even our current engagement with indigenous peoples throughout the Americas. This is an unsettled and ongoing colonialism that we definitely don't, we have not come to terms with in the United States, much less many other countries. And so I think it's important for us to always engage and understand that these things have changed, but at the same time, there are certain fundamental aspects of it and uh, that a lot of these sorts of thinkers point out in their work that remain the same and that I think offer lessons to us about 
what we can do in terms of not only analyzing the problem, but hopefully coming up with programmatic solutions. I think this is one of my personal frustrations, however, when we do these sorts of readings, because I think sometimes we find ourselves getting really, really good at analyzing what to do, or I'm sorry, not what to do, but how to think about the problem, right? A lot of these thinkers really help us with the analytical framework, but then when it comes time to action, I think that that's where many of the texts, unfortunately, are lacking. Uh, this idea of the praxis, right? Like, how do we put this theory into action? And so I think that's where readings by people like Freire, for example, that have very concrete examples of how to put these ideas on the page into action in the public and on, within communities. I think his kind of work is really important. So I try to do my best to sort of mix up not just sort of basic theory and ideas and analysis around the current situation or the past situations that they're addressing, but also ways that we can start to kind of think differently about our approaches. And especially on the left, because one of the things that I see a lot of online is this idea of like talking down to people. There's a certain degree of condescension in many times. There's also sometimes I think often a degree of racism and classism that's still very evident on the left that, that many leftists have not fully worked out. And I think that looking to, in particular, a lot of the work of leftists of color and the work that they read helps give us clues as to how we can combat those issues and hopefully create a left that's more equal. And that's also really focused on helping those who are and empowering and engaging those, the concerns of uh, people who are the most oppressed within, within the communities that we, we find ourselves in and serve. Thank you for elaborating on that. And I would concur that there is a racism and classism, and I would say also sexism on the left yeah. that often excludes women of color, women from the global south who um, are writing, theorizing, and are part of decolonial struggles. And as you kind of indicated, there are a handful of people who circulate not just in citational practices, but even in terms of what people was part of people's popular imagination. Some of that has to do, in some cases, with languages in which European languages like English, French, and sometimes German or Spanish get uh, seen as more important than Yoruba, tree, Pashto, that the linguist linguistic difference might be part of the, the divide. Can you elaborate or indicate which uh, anti-colonial, decolonial women from the global south have been the most inspirational for you over the past several years in terms of citational practices, in terms of uh, theoretical approaches and, and methods? Sure. Um, one of the things that the it's funny because the way I answer this is going to be kind of weird, but there are so many that it's almost hard to think of one. Um, and I when I say that, I mean because a lot of my academic work is trying to find the the sort of look at look at the theorizing and and really thinking and practice even on the very local basic level, right? So I think sometimes we fall into this trap of sort of saying, this is what activism is, like activism trademarked, right? This is what leftism is, active or leftism trademark. And I think sometimes that in academia, at least, what ends up happening is we sort of ignore the acts of everyday socialism, right? Or everyday communism or whatever that people have been engaged in for centuries um, and that often get ignored. This is why I think works like Black Marxism are so important because he, he pushes us to sort of think about these models that exist before Marx was writing and before a lot of these thinkers that we often point to as canonical were born, right? One way that I try to approach this, so some of my work engages sort of anthropological methods where I'm doing interviews 
interviews with activists and I'm understanding activism not only as something that means you are part of a formal leftist organization and you held a leadership role and instead what are you doing in your everyday communities in your neighborhood how are you engaging these practices that are often seen as groundbreaking leftist practices and yet it's something that you do on that every, an everyday basis. I think also in this process, like some of the people that I've featured for Left POC of the Week have been, in some cases, more formal, formally associated to leftist groups and leftist organizations. But at the same time, some of them wouldn't necessarily call themselves, at least at the time, they may not have called themselves a Marxist or a leftist even or a socialist, but they were engaging in practices that would definitely fit into that category. So that's why I try to mix it up. I'm also I'm very you know sensitive to a lot of these these sort of intra-left fights between, for example, anarchists, communists, et cetera. And I do try to do my best to profile people who are from a variety of different leftist sects and may not have even considered themselves technically leftists. But in my own, I mean, uh, there are people that I don't want to name because you'll have to read the book later when <laughs> that dissertation kind of turns into a book. Um, but I, I really do think that a lot of the reasons that we don't see more women side. It is not it, not just a matter of language, which is something that I think is important that you point out um, and definitely relevant. And so not just in terms of formal language, right, but how that language is used and how that language, what are the signal points that make people say, oh, this is an important text I need to read. This is an important important person I need to focus on because he or she used the language within the language I already speak that I'm used to being uh, signal points for like a specific ideology, right? And I think sometimes women in particular, especially some of the women that I interview who may not have had formal educations or who may not have been, as I said, may not have been part of formal organizations, they nevertheless articulate things in a way that wouldn't necessarily signal people to thinking that they're leftists right away. And so I think it's important to kind of try to read between those lines and find, look at practices and look at everyday engagements and also understand that as a means through which leftist praxis is embodied. So yeah, so that's that's my answer to that. But I do feature a lot of people on the actual Left POC Twitter page who happen to be women who are also in formal organizations and whose language, is, whose, whose language and words and, and work is just under-recognized. We have an understanding of what, a collective understanding of what quote-unquote leadership looks like. And oftentimes that doesn't include queer people, women of color, people of color in general. And even within spaces of color, that's often going to cis heterosexual men as our primary people to look to as leaders. So it's a matter of kind of rethinking what that means and rethinking also, again, like I said, what what leftism in action looks like. I want to ask you about your your dissertation, your research, and specifically your dissertation at the moment is entitled, um, and you can confirm, Exiles and Allies, Portuguese, Africa, and the Brazilian Left, 1951 to 19- 92? It has had a little bit of a shift. Um, so <laughs> okay. Exiles, Exiles and Allies is still in the title. It's the main okay. title. Um, but the full mm-hmm. title right now is Exiles and Allies, Race, Resistance, and Radical Thought in Cold War Brazil and Portuguese Africa. So more or less same idea, but that's the new title. One of the things that I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing from you is Brazil as a settler colonial state has been dealing with the fact of Portuguese settler colonialism on the one hand and being a product of the transatlantic slave trade and having one of the largest black community in, in the world. How coloniality and anti-black racism is coded in Brazil and which components of these power structures is most pronounced and most visible in your research? In my research, because it takes place a bit 
a while back, you know, like in the, between the fifties and the nineties, more or less. And I don't focus on media that much in my work. Um, I mean, I focus on print media, for example, I'm using newspapers and magazines and things like that. Um, but it's not so much about sort of colonial leftovers or vestiges in, in uh, Brazil. It's more about the ways that Brazilians themselves learned from engaging ideas of leftism that were coming out of these decolonizing movements in Africa, um, and particularly Portuguese Africa for reasons that I go into in my work. But one of the things that I would say just from living there and from prior research that I did that did have to do specifically with media and often, uh, you know, women's political organizing and things like that, that I did a little bit before I started working on this project is I think one of the main areas where you see constant sort of throwbacks <laughs> into the colonial period and, and the transatlantic slave trade and all of that is really in media. Um, you see it when you turn on the television and you notice that everyone around you is like, my color are darker. So I have like a medium brown skin tone. Everyone around me is my color or darker pretty much. Um, and then you turn on the TV and all the politicians are white, all the celebrities are white. And when I say white, I mean like blonde hair, blue eyes, and pretty much beauty is encapsulated by this idea of very extreme whiteness that doesn't necessarily match the population. There are certainly white people there uh, to make that clear. So there, I think sometimes, you know, the idea of whiteness gets a bit distorted when you're talking about Latin America, because sometimes Americans in the U.S. at least don't recognize that white people in Latin America are also still white. So there's a lot of uh, debate going on, for example, that's being waged by Afro-Latinos in the United States about recognition, where they're saying, look, we exist too. And what you guys are seeing and calling Latinidad or this essence of being Latino is actually based in a sort of European ideal and a white supremacist ideal of what Latinidad is. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is very prevalent in Brazil still. Things are changing for sure. I would say, you know, the natural hair movement there is a really big thing. I first lived there back in 2008, 2009. That's like when I actually like permanently, not permanently, but like lived there for a straight period of time for a year and a half. Um, and I saw it or even then where you would see, for example, women with braids, women with cornrows, women with afros, it was starting to become a real thing that was being embraced more and more around that time. And now it's almost, you know, the norm in many ways in terms of products and hairstyles and whatnot, what's considered acceptable. At the same time, there are many parallels to what we have in the United States insofar as there's still a denigration of uh, Black bodies and in particular Black women's bodies. Uh, they are hypersexualized by both Brazilian people who live in Brazil and obviously people outside of Brazil. And I think one of the things that's really interesting that we don't talk enough about is that the fact that many of these images come from not only the colonial period where there was a specific understanding of like what black women's bodies were for, but there was also, I think, a reiteration of this in the 1970s and 60s during the dictatorship where they were trying to hide all of the things that were happening in the country by using tourism. We see this even to this day, um, where this, this idea of the exotic, bikinied, you know, attractive brown woman, brown or black woman, who's a good samba dancer and whatnot, became the projected image of Brazil. And it was sort of using that image to not only represent Brazil, but to represent the idea that Brazil itself was sort of this paradise. But the problem, of course, is that that, that idea of paradise is is sort of built on this idea of conquering a woman's body, in particular a black woman's body and what that means. It takes away the agency, um, of course, of, of the woman herself. And it also takes away the agency, if you will, of the country because the country itself was you know, being run by a US-backed military dictatorship and basically telling European and American met white men uh, to come and explore all of the fruits. Literally, they use this kind of language, uh, the fruits of Brazil. 
one of those fruits being the women themselves. These images and what they mean, not only to the broader public beyond Brazil, but within Brazil as well. I would also say another area where you still see this, this leftover colonialism is often in the political realm. So right now, Brazil is being run by a fascist president by the name of Jair Bolsonaro. And when he was elected, one of the things that kept coming up is that he himself, he was in the military during the dictatorship, but he he relied on a lot of this imagery from the dictatorship, which he doesn't call a dictatorship, he refers to as a revolution, which is the language that conservatives used at the time as well. And he sees it, he sees, he sort of recognizes Brazil as the space that's technically meant for the U.S. So it's very much playing on these old ideas of not necessarily what we would call colonialism in the formal sense, but certainly on an idea of you know, capitalist imperialism and ownership of the natural resources in Brazil by states like the United States and many parts of Western Europe. I know that it's a dangerous path that the country has gone down, but I don't wanna say that it's all about him because one of the things that I saw when I was living there um, and then that I've seen subsequently every time I've gone back for research is the fact that the, the right in Brazil is very strong. It's been strong for a very long time. And I think that there's not, I think even if you, much like with the US, if you get rid of Trump, just like that, if you get rid of Jair Bolsonaro, it doesn't mean that these problems and the vestiges of this sort of thought go away. And so it's very important for people, I think, to be informed about how those those sorts of leftover ideas from the dictatorship continue to exist within, within Brazilian politics and Brazilian society and try to work toward, you know, correcting or at least mitigating some of those uh, lasting effects. As far as how it relates to my research, I just want to say really quickly that, you know, because I'm dealing with people who at the time were living under the dictatorship in Brazil and who were living under colonialism in within Portuguese Africa, it's fascinating to see the ways that many of them were engaging on how to resist these powers. And I think it's fascinating as well that many of the subjects in my work, the interlocutors, if you will, looked at Africa as a sort of specifically political space in ways that hadn't been done in Brazil before. So there was often, and I think some somewhat remains, this idea of Africa as, you know, the birthplace of Brazil. There's a there's a sort of connection to between Brazil and Africa because of slavery and because of all of these sort of what I would call folkloric elements. But there's often a depoliticization of what Africa means and what African people themselves were engaging in. And so in, in a lot of my research, there are different perspectives on this, obviously, but it's fascinating to see the ways that some activists from Brazil have to fight past these images of Africa as being, as a whole, as being this sort of folkloric space where we got our music and our language and our food, and instead also understanding it as a very active political space, and one that is different from places like Cuba, the USSR, Chile, and et cetera, where other people were sort of exiling themselves during the dictatorship. What are the ways that Portuguese Africa itself sort of offers a different model of socialism and leftism itself, and how that works within the Brazilian framework, how that influences the left to think about race and many other issues. So that's what my work is sort of trying to, to look at the ways that these sorts of connections with African people themselves and African thinkers and writers revolutionize the understanding of Africa itself within Brazil among a specific set of people and I think had lasting effects in some ways in leftist politics that unfortunately right now are in decline because of the power of the right. So, ah, big sigh. <laughs> so, in speaking about the context of Brazil and specifically 
how people are speaking across national contexts or borders. In March 2018, Yuko signed an article entitled On the Imperative of Transnational Solidarity, a U.S. Black Feminist Statement on the Assassination of Maria Lefranco. And it was in reference to the, the murder of the Black queer politician, socialist, uh, Maria Lefranco, who uh, was murdered by police, uh, some argue. And it, having that statement, and not just your statement, but a kind of international outcry, provides one mechanism by which transnational struggles, uh, connections between the Brazilian police violence against uh, Black people and, and people of color, as well as those in the United States and even here in Europe, that, that kind of spoke to the necessity for international global struggles against police and state violence. To what extent do you think these transnational struggles and solidarity actions are effective in opposing the rise of the far right on an international scale? Um, I think, so the, the answer here is sort of ironic because what ends up happening oftentimes is, especially in places like Brazil, I don't want to say the left, although the left also does this, but there's sometimes people look to quote unquote, first world countries for approval, which is a leftover, again, of this colonial mindset, right, in colonialism itself. This idea that, oh, anything that comes out of the US, especially, or Europe, Western Europe, is somehow superior to what people are doing in Brazil, which is not the case. So I'm not arguing for that. But I'm saying that that's somewhat a leftover of what they literally call in Brazil, the Vira Lata syndrome, which is this idea of being a mutt. Um, and you always need sort of approval. Um, there's nothing that is seen as superior that comes out of the country, et cetera. Everything is sort of downplayed and made inferior. Um, and that also goes toward the sort of national national consciousness and personal pride in what it means to be Brazilian. So there is, there's a degree to which I think this idea of the Vidalata syndromes is very present in terms of Brazilian politics very much to this day, including on the left. And I think ironically, what ends up happening is that when there is international solidarity towards a specific issue, particularly when it comes out of the United States, for better or for worse, that message sort of carries more weight. So obviously there has been an outcry against police brutality in Brazil for decades, if not from the jump. I mean, literally, if you look at the end of slavery, the process of dismantling slavery, there were so many movements led by Black Brazilians from the jump, literally, towards this move, towards these efforts. But I think sometimes what ends up happening is that even, in, and again, some of the research that I've done um, related to my dissertation and other work is that you see this constant looking to the U.S. for approval, um, looking to see what Black people in the U.S. are doing, looking to see what activists in Europe are doing, as opposed to recognizing the power of what they're doing. And unfortunately, this also has an effect on what people in these quote unquote first world countries look to as well. So I think sometimes there is an ignoring, unfortunately, of what leftists are doing in other countries that I think we could learn from, we should be paying more attention to in terms of activism. So a good example right now, for example, is what's going on in Ecuador. I mean, Ecuador literally just pushed out uh, legislation that was going to be making the country dependent upon IMF loans. And I think that that is an example of the ways that activism, protests and resistance through its many forms, have actual real power. So this is, but you know, you didn't hear much about Ecuador in the mainstream press, right? So it's important for us to acknowledge that that gap. I think, however, all of that being said, that these beyond that particular aspect of why these statements are powerful, it's also powerful because it signals, I think, to 
people there that we are paying attention, that some of us are watching and understand your pain. We understand how our pain is similar, how our pain and, and lived experiences overlap with yours, and how much of what we are focusing on is part of a larger continuum. I sometimes am reluctant to use anti-Blackness only because it occasionally sort of, I think, overshadows other elements at play as well in this process, including sort of the impact of capitalism and things like that. But I do think that it's an important framework for us to keep in mind when we're having these discussions about what it means for me to be a Black woman in the United States and see and witness people like myself being gunned down by police and also recognize that Black people in Brazil are being killed at much greater numbers than what we have in the U.S. So, for example, in major cities like one major city, Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro, for example, people are being murdered right now in the thousands per year, as opposed to in the United States where we're being Black people are being murdered in the hundreds. It's not a good number, of course, but I think when we consider the police at least an entire country is affecting the black population by X numbers, that number is exponential in one city alone in Brazil compared to our numbers. So I think those numbers are jarring and scary and at least kind of help us wake up to what's going on beyond just our own, you know, beyond what's happening in our own country. So that's that's where I think it is effective. But I am also, again, just cautious about sometimes what I recognize is sometimes an unintentional attention that's being paid to certain figures from the West, themselves also Black and marginalized in some way oftentimes, but I still think that there has to be a recognition of the work that's being done at the local level in Brazil, and that's often overlooked by Brazilians themselves, by people who are living in, in many of these countries. And unfortunately, the attention that should be being paid to local issues and events is oftentimes shared with or um, overshadowed by actors in, in other countries, you know, like foreign activists and things like that, because of the legitimacy that we have more of by virtue simply of having been born in the United States or in Europe. The last thing I just wanted to say is that one of the main things that I contribute to that letter actually was a focus and understanding on the ways that the U.S. continues to impact Brazil's economy, Brazil's politics, and also what it means for us as people living in the United States how our decisions impact other people. And I think that's something that we rarely think about in the U.S. We have a tendency to focus on domestic issues alone um, and not understand how every single one of our votes, all of our decisions, even some at the local level, impact people abroad in very serious ways, including, for example, you know, this is something that's not talked about a lot, but the simple fact that like Dilma's overthrow, so Dilma was president of Brazil from the from a left center-left party called the Workers' Party. During her administration, she was spied on by the U.S. under the Obama administration. And then her coup at ouster uh, was actually also sponsored by the U.S. in many ways, many of the attorneys that worked on it, the politicians that worked on it, et cetera, were funded by the U.S., were trained by U.S. think tanks and or, you know, trained at, in, in universities in the United States and had connections to powerful people in the U.S. who wanted to see her gone. So I think it's very important for us to understand that our everyday decisions have an impact in ways that we're perhaps not necessarily conscious of and that we have to really pay attention to that when we're making political decisions here, too. This podcast is actively thinking about decolonization and the ways in which it's been taken up, especially in the context of museum spaces and how museums are invested. And we see this with the decolonize this place movement uh, at the Whitney to how in the European context, the Tsar and Savoy statements on repatriation by the French towards African countries and things that have been stolen. And then there's also just academics who might be using the term because it has a certain kind of purchase 
as a trendy term. How do you define decolonization and how has your work incorporated decolonial methods and put it into practice? How I personally define it, I mean, I, I think one of the things that I try to do is define it through action. So like I see some of the work that I do with the Left Pocket Project as a means of doing that by um, opening up spaces that are normally what I, I, I kind of jokingly say are behind a paywall, you know. Um, so academia is behind a paywall. Uh, many times our understanding of um, intellectualism and intellectual thought and contributions are behind, quote unquote, behind a paywall, right? Um, so I think one aspect of decolonizing, at least in terms of uh, uh, sort of media spaces and, and left media in particular is to make things available and free um, to try to make sure that when I do a podcast that anyone can, uh, you know, listen to it and more or less understand what's going on. Um, the other thing, even in my writing, I try to make sure that when I am writing, even my dissertation, I don't want my dissertation to be, you know, written in a way that people can't understand it. And nothing against academics who write like that because their work is also important. But I think that for me personally, I want anyone to be able to pick up my work and understand what's going on and be interested in what I'm talking about and see it as a, something that they can connect back to their own lives, not necessarily just something that, you know, only people who teach in, in a college setting can understand and, and talk about. In particular, because Many of the people at the center of my research are these kinds of people, right? Like, of course, I focus on some professors and whatnot, but most of the people at the center of my work are students, are just people who are like cleaning ladies, people who are engaged in this activism in some way, but nece wouldn't necessarily be considered part of the formal labor market. So I think it's important for me, if I'm working on this kind of history, to make sure that people who are a part of that, like on concurring history now in the contemporary moment can pick it up and read it and understand what's happening. You know, I agree with you that it has become this trendy thing. I think in many ways, like what we see with what happened with intersectionality, right? So it had one meaning at one point <laughs> and then kind of has been co-opted and, and meant to mean so many different things. And I think this, the idea of like decolonize this space and whatnot is, is a nice catchphrase, but you have to ask yourself, how far does it go? So the other thing is I always try to think about accessibility as well. So um, I make sure that like we have assistants who do transcripts. So if you ever need a transcript of an episode, you can ask for it. I try to put out things in other languages. I try to make sure that the, the graphics that we put out and things like that are visible. So I, I am very, I don't know, I pay attention to these things because I don't want anyone to ever feel excluded from the experience of learning. And so that's one way that I think as someone who's hoping to be a professor, full-time professor at some point, that that is, is key to the process of quote-unquote decolonizing. What you described, which is the experience of learning and the ways in which that could provide a space and an opening for us to collectively understand histories and movements that have been stolen from us or taken mm -hmm. from us so that we can, in, in many ways, move forward in feeling a bit more empowered, especially in light of so many of the crises that exist, whether it be the climate crisis or even the question around politically uneven spaces, the ongoing economic crisis, student loan debt. Do you have one final seed of hope <laughs> that <laughs> we can end on with when we think about some of the the broader big picture issues at hand yeah you know it's something that my co-host Richard and I talk about a lot because usually I feel like at the end of every podcast especially the ones that are talking about you know like content like ongoing politics so the election for example I find myself getting really down <laughs> <laughs> 
try to be positive, but again, I feel like in my personal life, I'm, I'm much lighter and like happier, but I feel like when it gets time for me to be on Twitter or on this podcast, I get, I, I sometimes turn into like a Debbie Downer and don't mean to, but that's the reality we're working with. On the one hand, hope can be motivating, right? Because it gives you a goal to work toward and it helps keep your spirits up and whatnot. But at the same time, sometimes the hope feels false <laughs> because you also recognize the degree of the problems that you're facing and encountering and experiencing. And it can feel like hope is almost downplaying or ignoring aspects of that burden. So for me, I think hope has to be like an active hope, you know, it has to be one that recognizes the reality of what we're dealing with and also tries to, this is where I think the past is actually really helpful, tries to look towards these moments, even how, like however fleeting they were. Look at moments of transnational solidarity, especially I always say, you know, South, South or third world transnational solidarity, because in particular, these people are working through an extreme degree of adversity. And I think when we see these collaborations being forged and networks being forged between these types of, of communities, people who are the oppressed of the oppressed of the oppressed coming together and fighting and winning, I think that that can be in and of itself hopeful and inspirational. Now, obviously, the conditions are different uh, with time. We're facing, you know, we're not necessarily an agricultural society. Uh, we're not working with the same set of factors. We're not working with a weakened military, as which is something that we saw often in, in African colonial exploits, right? Um, especially in the Portuguese case, the Portuguese military was kind of a hot mess. And so it made it a bit easier, um, not, uh, not easy, but made it easier, I think, in many ways for them to be overthrown. And I think right now what we're looking at is a set of, of power, degrees of power that almost feel insurmountable. But to always kind of remember that people back then felt that way too. They looked at their situation and they said, wow, guys, like we're up against a very strong military. We're up against a stronger economy. We're up against fill in the blank power structure that has been oppressing us for maybe hundreds of years and they managed to overthrow it. And so I think that, that that's why I think looking towards this history and understanding these histories can in many ways give us a realistic hope. And it's one that I think feels more attainable in many ways because we know it can be done. We have proof that it has been done. So it's a matter. And I think the other side of that is also understanding that victory is always going to seem temporary. If we say, okay, well, the Angolans overthrew the Portuguese, but now Angola's, you know, in, in a very dire economic situation and it's an oil state and fill in the blank. I think that it also is, it has to be a reminder to us that these fights are not separate and they're not isolated in time. They're ongoing. There's always going to be a challenge. You know, there's never going to be an end to that. But we can look to these past moments where they have had an interruption of that power, a discontinuation of that power, and then a contesting of that power that I think can can help us feel some sense of <laughs> positivity as we we push for something better. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and to end on that note and to think about the relevance of history. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you as well. You've been listening to Decolonization in Action. Please check out Wendy on Twitter at MuseWendy and support the Left Pocket Project at www.patreon.com slash leftpock. Please share, like, and rate our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. To learn more about our podcast or to find biographies of people who we interviewed, as well as the links of organizations and projects mentioned in the episode, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.wordpress.com.